I want you to turn to the book of Luke. We're going to continue our study of uh, Luke chapter 4 and the, the purpose of the anointing. Because we know that the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and I've said this every week that we've talked about this, but the anointing of the Holy Spirit is not just to give you chills, is not to give you a feeling or an emotion, but the anointing of the Holy Spirit is for a purpose, that you would do something. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to do. He's anointed me to preach. He's anointed me to proclaim. Release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those that are oppressed by the devil, preach the gospel to the poor, preach the favorable year of the Lord. That's what he's anointed us to do. And so you are the anointing of God on your life. And yes, if you are a believer, the anointing of God is on your life. What you do with it is, is a t an entirely different question. But the spirit of the Lord has anointed you to continue and carry on the ministry of Jesus. And we need to, and I've said this before, but we need to stop using the word anointing to only apply to pulpit ministry. It's got to apply to the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. You know, the, the idea of the body, Jesus being the head and, and us being the body, you know, the scriptural picture that's made of the anointing is that it says when brethren dwell in unity, the oil flows down from the head, down the beard, and onto the body. So as the body of Christ, the anointing that's on the head, the anointing that's on Jesus flows onto us. And the key to that is that we're walking and, and, and living in unity. And when we live in unity, the anointing is on all of us together. So we're anointed. But we're not just anointed for chills and thrills and goosebumps. Hey, I like the goosebumps. I have felt the goosebumps. I love those moments in the presence of God where you understand that there's something greater than me happening. Do you know what I mean? I'm all about that. I mean, I, I, I thank God for a tangible sense of the manifest presence of God because it's in those moments I've genuinely been changed. There's been things that happened in those moments that could never happen anywhere else. It was in that moment that, that God did something in me because my walls were down. My, it pierced to my heart, past all the layers of, of my head trying to figure things out. And, and, and all of the stuff that I had put in the way, God got through. And that's why so often, you know, when we worship together, there is something that's called the corporate anointing. And what that means is not corporate like a business. Corporate as in a body. Which means it's anointing that, that belongs to the body. That that's, There's something different when all of these streams that God's given you, a, you, you know, there's a stream in you. There's a wellspring of life in you. And when these streams come together, they form a great river. And maybe you've sensed that before when you've come. And because I have sensed the anointing at home. But there is something different when I come together with my brothers and sisters. And those streams flow together. And there's something so transformative about it. I've been changed in those moments. I've told you before that I've sat across from, you know, for, for an hour talking to somebody, trying to help them through a situation, and could not get ground by just talking to them. And yet, in five minutes of worship on a Sunday morning, they, they surrendered their heart, and God did something in those five minutes that we couldn't do in five hours. And that's the power of God. And, you know, we're going to continue on in Luke 4 and talk about what Jesus was anointed to do. And if I've said this every time we've talked about this, but the scripture is clear that Jesus' ministry has become our ministry. 
So if he was anointed to do it, we're anointed to do it. We're anointed with the same Holy Spirit. We've been given the same word that he had. Every miracle he did was by the Spirit and by the word, right? Well, in John chapter 16, he says, I'm giving you my spirit. John 14, 15, 16, I'm giving you my spirit. In John chapter 17, he says to the Father, the word you gave me, I gave to them. He gave you his name. Everything, the word, the name, and the spirit that Jesus walked in, and all the miracles and all the signs and wonders happened because of those things. You have the same word. You've got the same name, and you've got the same spirit, which means you have that same anointing on your life. Now, it may not look like Jesus' ministry. You're not going to wander around the Middle East probably. You may, you may see that look different in all of us because the Bible says, Peter writes, that this, it, we are to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold being, it's diverse. It looks different in all of us. So the ministry of Jesus on the oil field looks different than the ministry of Jesus on the mission field, but they are both just as needed. In fact, the oil field is a mission field. Amen. Praise God. So the ministry of Jesus at the drive through window may look different than the ministry of Jesus at, at the homeless shelter, but they are both the ministry of Jesus. And if we would let God work in those spaces, we'd see the anointing. And the problem is, is we only expect the anointing to show up in spiritual settings. But every setting is spiritual. Isn't that right? We are spirit. God is spirit. So every situation you're in is a spiritual situation. You just don't know it. You just think, well, this is just normal. This is just life. Life should never be normal again. Life should never be normal for you. Every situation is a spiritual situation. Now listen, you can still watch the hockey game, right? I'm not saying that, that, that you're always like, somebody's like, hey, you, you want to go out for some you want to go out for some burgers? Well, let me pray about it. I just need to intercede for five hours before I say yes. No, I mean, like, you just, you go through life aware of God, right? And, it, you know, when your team's losing, you don't put your hand on the screen and say, oh, I'm just going to pray for them. Just... I've been tempted. My team suffered a terrible loss this week. I was tempted, but I knew that God wouldn't cheat for me. So every situation is spiritual. Every situation We'll, we'll have an opportunity for you to lean on Jesus and lean on the anointing. And you have to know that you are anointed Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We have to get rid of the idea that there are, there's a spiritual side of our life and a natural side of our life. We, we got rid of that way of thinking. Everything in our life is us walking in the anointing of Jesus Christ. And so don't turn it on and off like, an, uh, like a light switch. Walk through life aware of his presence. Now here's what it says in Luke chapter 4. Jesus, of course, speaking to the synagogue in his own home district, says in verse 18, Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Of course, last week we talked about recovery of sight to the blind. Before that, we talked about release to the captives. And, and, and I've said to you when we talked about release to the captives that release to the captives and setting free those that are oppressed sound like the same thing. 
And I think they flow together. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, that word captive is not just talking about somebody that's in prison. It's, it literally means someone who's been carried away. In other words, uh, a prisoner of war. And so when Jesus preached release to the captives, he went in and took back the souls that the enemy thought were his. This, was, this is the message of the gospel, that we were under the domain of darkness, and now we've been brought into the kingdom of his glorious son. Now, setting free those that are oppressed was such a major part of Jesus' ministry. That in fact, when Peter talks about it in Acts chapter 10, when he's talking to Cornelius, he says, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So can we, can we kind of extrapolate from that, that one of the evidences that God is with you is that wherever you go, freedom goes with you. That wherever you go, people should be coming into a place of freedom and coming out of captivity. God was with him, and so the evidence of God being with him was that he healed all who were oppressed by the devil. The word here that's used in Luke 4 for oppressed, in, in one tense in the Greek could be used to, to shatter or to break apart. But in this particular Greek verb tense, it, it means to crush or to, to push down. To keep down, to crush, it's translated in some places as, as to bruise, but it's, 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 it's not to break apart necessarily, but just to keep down, to, to crush, to, to keep under a, a oppression. We could talk, and we probably will, talk about different ways that that looks in our society, in our nation, in our world right now. We've seen people that have been oppressed systematically by government. We've, been, we've seen people that have been oppressed by addiction that they're bound to. We've seen people that have been oppressed um, um, relationally through the people around them. But, but ultimately, all oppression starts with the devil. And Jesus addressed it in different ways because um, big picture, you know, you could see him, uh, you could make a very strong case that, for instance, women were oppressed in Jesus' time. And Jesus was radical about how he gave them a place and forced them to be seen by people who just would rather ignore them. Um, you could talk about how Jesus took um, Samaritans who might have been oppressed and looked down on and, and brought them to a place of saying the gospel's for you too. One of the most obvious examples of freeing people from oppression was the fact that everywhere Jesus went, demons flew out of people, right? You can't ignore that. That a major hallmark of Jesus' ministry was everywhere he went, people with evil spirits were, were cleansed, were set free. Now, here's a question. In 2017, there's a whole chunk of Christianity that doesn't want to talk about that. You want to know why I've said this before? Because what we can understand and what we can see, we can control. And we don't like being out of control. As humans, we do not like to be out of control. What we can see, what we can perceive, what we can understand, we feel like we can control that. And so when we begin to talk about a spiritual world we can't see, people get nervous. And even Christians try to put Christianity in a light that's basically just pop psychology with a cross connected to it. And we have to understand there's still a war that we don't see. You know that, right? Now, I mean, here's the question. 
Because, I, you know, you hear people say, well, it was just superstition, right? I mean, we know more now. I mean, people blamed evil spirits for everything, and I agree. In the Middle Ages, when they're drinking water that nobody should be drinking, they figure their town's cursed because everybody's getting sick, when, when in reality, the sewage is, is just going through the water system. We understand that, but that doesn't mean that there were no instances of actual spiritual work happening. Here's how I know. So 2,000 years ago, we've got tribal people. We've got people who don't have the scientific uh, discoveries that we have, the medical knowledge that we have. And the question people ask is, so when people seem to be demon-possessed, what if it was just, you know, something we didn't understand? And my answer, and, and the best I can understand is that when Jesus, Jesus said there were times where someone was just sick, and there were times that was a spirit causing it, both physically and mentally. There, there is mental illness that's, that has nothing, well, I wouldn't say nothing, but it, it's not related to somebody, you know, being oppressed by an evil spirit. There's physical illness that's not related to that, but in all cases, Jesus is the healer, right? In all cases, but Jesus knew the difference. There were times where he just said, be healed. And there were other times where it says he cast an unclean spirit out of them and they were healed. He healed deaf people who were just deaf. But there was a deaf and mute per person who he said there was a spirit causing that. And when he released that guy from that spirit, that, the, the, the kid was healed. So we understand that sometimes things are caused by spirits and sometimes they're not. Now, I... I also understand that if I were to get up uh, in front of the city of Lloydminster, in front of a gathering of business people, and say that to them, they'd go, wow, he's backwards. Wow, he really still believes in that stuff. Absolutely, I do. And here's why. Because when Jesus cast spirits out of people, they got better. So if it was just superstition, they wouldn't have got better, guys. Right? If there was just superstition, when he cast an evil spirit out of them, they still would have had the problem. But they got better, and the whole village looked at him and said, whoa, this person can see now. Whoa, this person, you know, is not having seizures that are throwing them in the fire. Whoa, something happened. Thank God Jesus healed them all. The Bible says that Jesus healed people of epilepsy. And the, that epilepsy was not a spiritual thing. It was just epilepsy. He healed them of it. But there, there was other times where there were symptoms that looked like epilepsy and it was an evil spirit. One of the evidences is that when this kid had a seizure, he didn't just have it in convenient places or inconvenient places. Somehow the spirit always threw him in a, into a fire. Well, there's a red flag. Either way, Jesus knew the root, he knew the cause, and he healed them. I've heard my brothers and sisters that I honor and love and respect Say, well, I think all that stuff just eventually went away. But here's a question. If that were true, don't you think it would have happened at the cross? Right? Like if demons were just going to stop being an issue, I would think the moment they'd stop being an issue would probably be when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. But all through the book of Acts, after the cross, all through the book of Acts, you have people being set free from evil spirits. So if they were all through the book of Acts, do you think that this might still be an issue today? Now, I've experienced this, and I, many of you in the room have as well. It was only a few months ago, a guy, <laughs> a guy in Loon Lake who had 
pledged his, himself. He said he was under the protection of a, a bear spirit. And uh, at first that seemed like a nice, tidy, good idea to him. Um, it was part of his traditional religion. He thought that was just something they do. Uh, but whatever spirit he thought was a spirit of a bear was just a masquerading spirit and took control of this kid. And I spent, <laughs> I think Tia was there. No, Liberty was there because we just had a kind of a group of people that were there that were just kind of standing back and a couple of us ministering to this man. And it's amazing. Um, this has happened over and over again, but it's amazing the more you begin to walk in the authority of Jesus' name, the more you begin to realize this has no ability to harm you. So this fellow looked at me, roared in my face. He came right up, you know, where you could smell his breath, but could not touch the sons and daughters of Jesus, the sons and daughters of the king. And with a word, the spirit came out, and another spirit came out, and another spirit came out, and the man was in his right mind, and thank God for it. But what if we had just tried to talk this guy out of his issues? Do you know what I'm saying? There's a time for talking. There's a time for counseling. I'm not saying that's, there, there's a time for that. There are people that need counseling. Amen? Because the Bible also says we need to renew our mind. We can't blame everything on the devil. Sometimes you just need to renew your mind. Your thinking is wrong. And your thinking is wrong because you've formed habits, habits and patterns. You've thought the same way for so many years that you, it's going to take, take some work to stop thinking that way. But there are times when there is a spirit at work, and the only thing that's going to help you is the name and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. I believe that because I don't think I could believe my Bible without believing that. I trust we're all people that believe the word of God here. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, this is a little too weird for me. I like when they talk about loving one another. Because <laughs> we can all believe that. You could preach that at the Rotary Club and be fine. But uh, there is a truth that I think you need to be equipped with. A few months ago, we talked about Ephesus. We, we spent two Sundays talking about Ephesus. And the amount of witchcraft and the amount of idolatry and the amount of perversity that was in that culture and that city at that time, um, which was a little bit worse than our own culture, which is hard to, hard to believe, but, but similar patterns. And the Bible says that extraordinary miracles were taking place through the hands of Paul. And what we see over and over in those extraordinary miracles was that demons were coming out of people. In Acts chapter 19, demons were coming out. Evil spirits were coming out. And it became well known that this was happening. And at the time, we talked about the fact that maybe extraordinary miracles had to happen because there was an extraordinary amount of spiritual oppression on that city because of what they had invited in. I might propose to you that in our culture, we have a bunch of open windows and doors to some things we shouldn't have open. And entertainment has been one of the major Trojan horses to get it in. What we watch and what we listen to has been a key. When we were up, uh, you know, we used to go often to uh, northern Manitoba, to some pretty remote places, places you had to fly into to get to, unless you went in the wintertime, in which case you could drive over the winter road, the lake. Um, but I remember, you know, when my dad, I, I started traveling with him when I was 16, but before that he was going uh, by himself. And uh, the first couple times he went, the, the preaching of the gospel was greatly hindered. And it was greatly hindered because um, the first couple times he went, a suicide happened right before he was supposed to preach. And in those communities, they're so tight-knit that when one person dies, the whole place shuts down. 
just completely shuts down. Nobody does anything. We can't have meetings. We can't do anything. It's shut down. When I came back, you, so what we began to do was begin to pray. And some of you were in the church at that time. We began to pray against that spirit, against suicide. We just began to pray in preparation. Now listen, we, we never want anyone to take their life. But there was a pattern. It was not coincidental that people were taking their life right before the gospel was supposed to be preached there. It was an attempt to stop the word. And part of the proof of it was that two young men who both were rescued from, they, they attempted suicide. And in, in that reserve, one of the ways that you would, was the most common was that you'd hang yourself. Two young men had the exact same story who had not talked to one another. They both said, we were in our room. I was in my room and I was listening to music. And all of a sudden I saw my closet open up. And I saw a picture of all my friends and, fa my friends and family members that had died. And it was a beautiful place. And they said, come, it's peaceful here. And they showed me how to use the closet to hang myself. And they attempted it. Thank God they were delivered. In fact, the bass player, I remember the bass player very well because he was a man with a sincere and pure heart, a, a man who loved God. And I got to know him and I, I, I appreciate this guy, but he always wore a turtleneck everywhere he went because it hid the rope burn on his neck. There were many who had that rope burned. They'd find ways to hide. When we were there, um, there was a girl that went missing, and the mother came in frantic that the girl was missing. Because in our culture, if a girl goes missing, we just kind of we look around. We say maybe she's at a friend's. In that town, in that reserve, if, the girl went, if somebody went missing, a young person went missing, everybody knew what that meant. They've gone off to kill themselves. And we began to have a prayer meeting right there. Everybody began to pray. And the Lord led the pastor behind a shed that nobody was looking. And he found this girl. And she was saved. You can't tell me there's not a spiritual element to that. Right? I know there's natural reasons people want to take their own life. But there was a spiritual element to that. In fact, my friend, and many of you know um, Robert Wilson, otherwise known as Fresh IE. Uh, a rapper who's Grammy nominated, but he chose to, instead of going down to L.A. and making money, he chose to stay up north and minister on the reserves. And he's a, he's a really talented artist. He's great at what he does. But uh, when I told him that story about those two young men, he said, you know, I used to work. I used to be the first responder that would go to the scene. He said, almost every time music was playing, and it was very dark music. What we watch and what we listen to matters. Now, I'm not one of those people that blames everything on that. But it does matter. We've opened a lot of windows and doors in our culture to some dark things. And it may be like Ephesus that it's time for extraordinary miracles to take place of deliverance and freedom. Because there's some people that are so deep in, they don't know they're deep in. We're a church that believes that God did not just call us to nice, comfortable places, but he's called us to be a place of welcome, a place of refuge and shelter for those that have been beat down, bruised, and oppressed, that they would find freedom here, that they'd find freedom in Jesus. And to do that, you gotta, you got to have more than just a warm handshake at the door and a good message and some nice music. You've got to have people that know who Jesus is and know the power of his name. Because God's going to bring us people, and he already has, 
He's going to bring us people that need more than a warm meal. He's going to, he's going to bring people that, that need someone to spend some time with them, believing God and ministering deliverance to them so that they'd be set free. I want to read you a story that's very familiar to most of you, which is found in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is um, it's a confusing and beautiful story. When Jesus went to the other side, the land of the Gerasenes. Now, this is in Decapolis. One of the Gospels talks about it being in Decapolis. Gerasene was one of the cities. Decapolis just means the ten cities. So, one of those cities was Philadelphia. One of those cities was um, the Gadarenes the, uh, and, and here the Gerasenes. And, and there's you know, several other cities in that area. In fact, it used to be more than 10, but they kind of just used it to describe the 10 cities there. And it was a region that was different um, from the Galilee and Nazareth, that area that Jesus did most of his ministry in. What was different about Decapolis was, if you go back, Alexander the Great, of course, uh, conquered most of the Middle East and most of, you know, he, he conquered uh, Persia and Greece and, and, and pushed all the way into parts of India, uh, Egypt. Um, and when he died, his ten generals kind of split the land up, fought over dominance and everything. But two of the most powerful of them that, that kind of rose out of the crop were Ptolemy who went to Egypt and that's where the Ptolemaic pharaohs came from. That's where Cleopatra, Cleopatra wasn't an Egyptian, she was a Greek. Um, that's where that came from. And, and a guy named, uh, you know, a, a guy who came over and, and founded the Seleucid Empire, the Seleucid Empire, was a, a man who was known as Antiochus. And Antiochus uh, brought a great paganism, and by great, I don't mean good, I mean bad, but, but in large number, brought paganism to the area, brought Greek culture to the area, and was one of Alexander the Great's dreams was that the world would become civilized as the Greeks and brought what we call Hellenization to the world. So, so that whole area had been greatly influenced by Greek culture. Even when the Greeks got pushed out and the Romans came in, it was still very Greek. So there were Jews in that region that had compromised and not only adopted the Greek language, but had adopted a lot of the Greek customs. So they, you know, they started eating pork. They stopped celebrating the same festivals. They start just becoming a little bit more Greek. In those cities, they'd have the, the nice stadiums and, 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 and buildings that were classically Greek and Roman. Herod himself was, a, was, was one of these rulers that was basically would, would adopt a couple of Jewish customs to keep everybody happy, but was really trying to bring Greek civilization to the area. So there was a response to that. The Pharisees put more rules in place to keep people to follow the Torah. That was, their, that was their pushback. A lot of people don't know why there were so many rules that the Pharisees had. They were trying to stop the encroachment of pagan culture into Jewish society. So they thought the way we do it is just make more rules. Well, how many of you know that doesn't really work? The Essenes withdrew into isolated communities. The Zealots responded with physical violence and acts of rebellion. And the Sadducees just basically adopted Greek culture for themselves. 
That's why the Sadducees, the Pharisees, at least believed the Bible. The Sadducees didn't believe there was a life after this. This is the end of it. The Sadducees had, had so adopted so much of the Greek culture that they barely believed anything of the Torah anymore. And they were the ones in power. So this is the land that Jesus comes into. Across the seas, Decapolis. Many of them called it the far-off land. Not because it was just far off physically, but because it was so far off spiritually. You could make a real good case that that's where the prodigal son went. The Bible says he went to a distant land and spent all his money on loose living. It's a good chance he went over to Decapolis. That was a place you could do that. And here's the deal. Because of them adopting all of these other things, they had allowed some things into their society that were not healthy, not good. Jesus crosses into the other side. His disciples aren't sure they should go there. And, and, and if they had just thought that nature was a sign from God, they would have thought God doesn't want us to go there because we almost died on the way. <laughs> they get there. And in Mark chapter 5, this is what happens. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And we got out of the boat. Immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, gashing himself with stones. The scripture says that, and it doesn't say it here, but in the other, God, in the other, this story is told in a couple of different places. It says in one of the other accounts in the Gospels that he was naked all the time. Naked, abusing himself, cutting himself, in constant torment. And the people of the area just tried to keep him out of their town and tried to chain him up, but he broke the chains. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. Shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to employ him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on a mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So demons kind of got pranked there. <laughs> they ended up going to the abyss that they so wanted to avoid. But the herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. They've just seen their whole economy shattered, right? Now, there's a good chance that these are Jews that aren't supposed to be eating pork to start with. <laughs> Somehow they got pigs. Remember, it was the prodigal son was feeding pigs. When he realized he shouldn't be with the pigs, he should be with his father. They shouldn't have had pigs, guys, but they did. And these pigs all ended up in the water. And they didn't go back and report, look what the Lord has done. 
They came back and reported, some dude just wrecked our business. And they're not happy with it. They came to Jesus. Sorry, their herdsmen ran away, reported it in the city and in the country. And the people, so they, these guys are busy, right? They came to see what it, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. They're not frightened when this guy runs out of the tombs naked, screaming at Jesus. They're really scared that he's clothed now and sitting in his right mind. And those who'd seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. Now, why are they bringing up the swine? Because, well, their business just got wrecked. And they began to implore him to leave their region. Can you imagine seeing such a miracle of mercy and freedom and grace and saying, please leave, we don't want to see you again. I read a great article the other day where somebody who is a lot smarter than me talked about the codependency of communities and, and codependency in families and how sometimes when somebody that has been the kind of the, 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 the black sheep in the family, when they get better, the whole family doesn't know how to deal with it anymore. It's one of the reasons, it's one of the first discoveries about the guy that founded Alcoholics Anonymous began to discover that when, when the guy who was the alcoholic got better, sometimes the family didn't know how to relate anymore. And so that's why they formed Al-Anon and Alateen to try to help families through this and realize we all got issues to work out here. In ancient cultures, it was very common for them to put their, and, and their sin, their corruption, their issues onto somebody. And that person is basically a scapegoat that's bearing, these are, our problems are on this person. In fact, in many of those cultures, they thought if they had spirits, they could put it on that guy. There are cultures in the world today where the witch doctors will say, I can get, I can get, you, I can get that spirit away from you, but it's going to go into these, this person. So there's some issues here that are more than just they wrecked our business, although that's part of it. Do you, do you, have you read through the Gospels in the book of Acts? Every time that Jesus delivers somebody miraculously, somebody's business gets wrecked. Right? The pigs, the slave girl in Philippi, Paul and Silas got thrown in prison because they cast a demon out of a girl, but it wrecked the whole business plan. In Ephesus, there was a riot because people were getting delivered and they didn't want the idols anymore. So the businessmen got together and said, our place and our business is at risk. And those are the two things that are put at risk when the freedom and the deliverance of Jesus Christ steps into a community. You think that everybody's going to be happy, but not everybody is. And the two things that are at just in direct danger is our place and our business. The enemy has used in society our need to feel superior, our need to feel like we, we understand our place in society, and our need, our greed for money has used those things to keep oppression going. I don't need to get too deep into that. But when you begin to step in, and when the kingdom of God comes and clashes with the kingdom of men, there are not just going to be happy people. There's some people that are very upset. 
These people were very upset, said, please leave. Get out of here. Suddenly, they don't really know how to deal with this guy that's been, he's the problem, right? This guy's the problem. What have they done? They, they haven't tried to help the man. They try to chain him up. Isn't that what we do? We don't know how to fix somebody, lock them up, just try to get them away, just keep them away from our kids. So they try to keep this guy away from town. They try to keep him away from society. But they are putting all their ills, it's his fault. You know, he's the bad guy. We're, we're, we're okay. All of a sudden, he's clothed in his right mind. They don't know what, what to do with that. I've witnessed it in families. Somebody gets delivered. The family doesn't know how to relate anymore. We've just blamed this guy for all our problems. Now we can't. <laughs> you know, what are we supposed to do with ourselves? Two things that have been at threat here. Their social order is at threat, and their business is at threat. And the enemy will use those two things to keep us in oppression. Jesus sets the man free, because that's what Jesus cares about, right? Jesus cares about our, us being free. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. The Bible says, for this purpose was the Son of God manifest or revealed to destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus said, right now, the ruler of this world has been judged. He stepped in to say, no longer are you going to have to be bound by addiction. No longer are you going to have to be bound by evil spirits. No longer are you going to have to be bound in the oppression, the systematic oppression that's been placed on you. I've come to set you free. And he didn't just say it with some words. He demonstrated it with power. Thank God. Imagine you're this man. Imagine you're the man. Because, you guys, we, we sometimes in our world of black and white, we just say good, evil, good, evil. But you and I, we know that every human being bears the image of God. And every human being has something in them that still knows that there's something other than this. We just like to make the villain the villain. He's the problem. She's the problem. They're evil. Jesus sets this man free. Can you imagine this man that everybody has just treated like he's the evil in the community? Has tried to chain him up, has abused him over and over again, has ostracized him, has made his family ashamed because this was a shame honor culture. So his family bore the shame of naked dad wandering around the tombs, naked being the, the greatest form of shame. They bore the shame of this. He bore the shame of this. And when the town says, please leave, Jesus obliges. He says, okay, I'll leave. His disciples look at him like, we almost died trying to get here. Now we got to go? We've just been here for a few hours. We got to go already? And the man says, Jesus, master, may I come with you in your boat? And Jesus says one of the most heartbreaking things at the time. He says, no, you can't come with me. Go back home and tell people what I've done for you and the mercy that's been shown to you. Wow. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going back to the people that chained you up? The people that called you evil? The people that ostracized you and your family? The people that put all their shame on you? You're the problem. Now you're better and they're mad that you're better? 
They're scared that you're better? Jesus says, go back. Tell them. I don't know if you've noticed, noticed this, but by the time we get to Mark chapter 8, there is a large crowd waiting for Jesus in Decapolis. 4,000 people are fed. Where in the world did those 4,000 people come from? This one crazy guy who got delivered and went back home and told everybody what Jesus had done for him. We all want to be Jesus in the boat, and I think you are, but you might also be the crazy guy who's better now. <laughs> and we all say, Jesus, send me to a faraway land where I don't have to look at these idiots anymore. And he might say, tell them what I did for you. They don't like me. They're scared of me. They're more scared of me now than I'm better. They don't know how to handle me. They knew how to handle drunk me. They knew how to handle high me. They knew how to handle angry me. They don't know how to handle delivered me. Well, that's their issue. Your assignment is to go and tell them what I've done for you. How many of you think that that, that man felt qualified? Do you think he felt qualified? Jesus didn't say, come on, I, I'm going to give you Bible school in an hour. He just said, go tell them what I've done. And somehow that message, what Jesus did for me, that message was the seed that developed into a crowd of over 4,000 people waiting for Jesus next time he came over. That's amazing. I remember my dad preached a message in Texarkana one time called the Lazarus Factor. Talking about the fact that that the peak of Jesus' ministry was actually a couple of weeks or a week before he was crucified. The peak of Jesus' ministry was the resurrection of Lazarus. It was one of the final signs of him being the Messiah. But it was also the proof that, you know, I mean, it was it, many people came to him because of Lazarus. In fact, that on the, the day when, when he's having the triumphant entry and he's riding on a donkey and coming into town, it says Jerusalem is actually a hostile place. Jerusalem is not a place that loves Jesus. Jerusalem did not throw a parade for Jesus. It was all his followers that went ahead of him. And as they rounded over the Mount of Olives, they began with a loud voice to tell everybody what Jesus had done and told everybody about Lazarus. Big chunk of the crowd came because what had happened to Lazarus? Lazarus was dead, but now he lives. Your life is so often the story of Lazarus. And all of us were the story of Lazarus. I was dead, but I'm alive. I was bound, but now I'm free. I was chained, but now I've been set loose by the power of God. Let me tell you what God has done for me and the mercy that he showed me. You are Lazarus. And it's often not the crowds that came just for Jesus. They came to see Lazarus because Lazarus was a living embodiment of what Jesus had done. This man was a living embodiment of the delivering power of Jesus. There's nothing you have. There's nothing that's bound you that isn't, isn't, uh, <laughs> isn't completely and totally under the feet of Jesus.
And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And at that name, some of that bowing is going to happen when he becomes, when he sets his feet on this earth and rules with a rod of iron. But some of that bowing is going to take place as his believers, just like he told the 12, just like he told the 70, go to every village and every village you go to, preach the kingdom, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out evil spirits. Cast out evil spirits. Because his kingdom is throwing out the other kingdoms. In a society that has increasingly given themselves, you know, it's funny because our society would like, to, would like everybody to believe that we are completely devoid of superstition, that we're just, we're scientifically minded, that we don't believe in that stuff anymore. But the truth is, we're more open to it than I think we've ever been. Um... And you see it in the obvious ways. You see it in obvious places of going on what's happening, Lloyd Minster, and somebody says, can you show me a medium or a spiritist or anything like that? That's obvious. But you know, it's also, um, it's also true that the same town in Decapolis and the Gerasenes and the Gadarenes, the same town that had this demoniac thought that he was the one who needed to be delivered. But the truth was they were all under oppression which is why they could not respond with joy when the man was set free. They were being oppressed. The woman, the, the, the woman who was described most likely a prostitute who had come to Jesus, or at least a woman who had had, um, maybe she might not have been a prostitute, she might just have been a woman with a bad reputation, but who came to Jesus and anointed his feet with her hair and with the perfume. She seemed to be the one that was oppressed. She certainly was. Remember, when these people were talking about her, Jesus had to say, look at her. The men aren't even looking at her as they're talking to, about her. Because to even look at her would have been wrong. Jesus says, look at this woman. Do you see this woman? They're forced to look at her. He begins to describe how because she's been forgiven much, she has great love. And the great lie at the table was that they didn't need just as much forgiveness. Well, sure, she needs more forgiveness than me. I've kept the law. Sure, she needs more than me. I've been a good man all my life. But no, they were just as dirty as she was. The only difference was she knew it. She knew it. So she had a great amount of love. When people are greatly delivered and they know it, there is an outpouring of love in response to the mercy of God. Now here's the lie. The lie is it's the people that look the most messed up that are the oppressed. The truth is we're all, we were all oppressed before Jesus came and set us free. So, I mean, come on, guys. The, that, I, I truly believe that the reason God has sent us so often to the people that are in so obvious need is the fact that they at least know they have a need. And that's why they're so often ready to come to Jesus. But you look around, it's not just them that need Jesus. Maybe you're that person who came out of that and you feel just unqualified to go and tell this so-and-so that's got a $600,000 house to tell them, well, if he did it for me, he could do it for you because, you know, they always seem to have their life together. But that's exactly what the man did in the garrisons. And 4,000 people were ready for Jesus when he hit the, hit the ground the next time. You got to tell your story. 
We are carriers of the same delivering power that set that man free from a legion of demons. There is no power like his power. He came to set him free. And I believe today that we can be free and that we must carry that freedom. I want to tell you, this is what we're training our folks in Loon Lake, and we're, tra- we're hoping that I want, I want you to have that same confidence that when we come in contact with a power that we don't understand, you don't have to, to bring in the big guns every time. Because you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit within you. You have the name of Jesus, and that is the big gun. Now, I guarantee you, you I mean, I would, I would highly encourage you, get somebody else in on it, because the, there is power in two people. Jesus sent them out two by two. He didn't send solo missions. He sent two by two. But every name that is named is under the name of Jesus. So you carry the name of Jesus. They're not listening to, to well, Leah has got a lot of power. Leah, Leah seems pretty, pretty, pretty big. I mean, she seems pretty, you know, they're listening to Jesus. And when Leah says in the name of Jesus, come out, they're not saying, well, Leah told me to come out. They're saying Jesus told me to come out. That's why they have to listen. That's why the seven sons of Sceva in Ephesus could not cast the spirit out because they did not have the right to the name of Jesus. They used the name of Jesus and the name of Paul like spells to be cast rather than an identity of who they were. They had no right to the name of Jesus. You have the right to the name of Jesus. believe extraordinary miracles are necessary in 2017 North America. Extraordinary. You know, Paul didn't set out trying to do extraordinary miracles. He just preached the word and went out and said, we're here to set free the oppressed. It was God that made the signs and wonders extraordinary. You don't have to try to be extraordinary. Just step in there and and, and just be that light in that place. Step out there and use the name of Jesus. Step out there and understand that there is not anyone that is beyond the grace of God. There's not anyone that's just too messed up. There's not anyone. In fact, those people that we think are too messed up are often the ones that are going to be the great light to their city. If we could believe it, if we could see what Jesus sees, clothed and in their right mind, clothed, The shame had been taken away in their right mind. And I believe Jesus today wants to remove the shame that has followed so many of you around. Jesus, that was the first thing he did to that man, clothed him. When Noah got drunk, that's not in the kid's storybook, is it? (laughs) The time Noah got drunk and naked? No, that doesn't show up in my Bible storybook. It's in the Bible, though. Noah got drunk, and um, one of his sons, Ham, came and, and found out that he was drunk. He thought it was funny. And he uncovered, he exposed his father to his brothers. He said, look at Dad, he's drunk, he's naked. His other brothers said, no, let's cover him up. Let's cover his shame. Let's show him honor, even when he's not acting honorable. What came out of that is that Ham and his descendants, his sons, were cursed because they refused to walk in honor, but instead they they exposed the shame of their father, whereas the other two acted honorably. 
It is the culture of this world to seek to shame. And if you haven't noticed this, little girls that grow up doing Disney Channel shows end up to be 20-somethings that end up hounded by the paparazzi wanting to kill themselves. So messed up because our culture loves to bring somebody up just so we can smash them. What you see right now going on with Hollywood, exposing people who have been perverse and, 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 and abusing and harassing in a sexual manner, that is darkness coming to light, and I thank God for it. But watch how, watch how we handle it. Watch how we handle it. You know what they're doing? This is what we do every time. This is what our culture does. We get two or three scapegoats, and we place all our sin onto them, and we publicly shame them and kick them out of town. That's what we've been trying to do since the beginning. Put our shame onto that person. They're our scapegoat. We're fine. They're the problem. Don't you know that there's something so deep, much deeper and systematic than those guys? And here's what they'll do. Here's what the world will do. They'll raise somebody up, they'll knock them down, and they'll make a public disgrace of them. And they'll say, see, that was our problem. What Jesus did was take our shame on himself. Here's what we're trying to do with celebrity. We are trying to find kings and scapegoats. We're trying to find a king that's better than us, that can lead us. We're trying, to, we're trying to find saviors in the wrong places, right? We're trying to find saviors in all the wrong places. This person will save us. This leader will finally deliver us. This guy's, this woman, they've got it together. And we're trying to find scapegoats. They're our problem. See, if we just expose them, everything's better. But there is only one savior and one scapegoat. There is one savior that took the sins of the world. And there's one scapegoat that took the sins of the world. And that's Jesus Christ. He was the scapegoat. And he was the savior. And he still is. And he lives to save.